0: We just had to be sure.
1: Welcome to Winds Howling, a companion podcast to The Witcher TV show on Netflix. We'll be diving deep into each episode of the show and exploring the larger context of the story from the games and novels. I'm Brett.
0: And my name's Abu.
1: And here we are almost halfway through. How does that feel?
0: It seems like we're blasting through this season.
1: Yeah, I think it's mainly because we really recorded these pretty quickly, like the last two or three. Yeah. And that first one, we had that break, and it was almost like a winter break after binging the series, and now we're into (laughs) analyzing mode, and isn't that the best part of podcasting?
0: Yeah, love it. Love to watch every episode, scene by scene, (laughs) remote control in hand. (laughs) Well, today we're going to be diving into, of course, episode four of season two. This one's called Redanian Intelligence. But first, some housekeeping. As a reminder, spoiler warning up top. This episode will be spoiler-free in terms of the TV show. We have watched the rest of the season, but we will not be talking about anything past episode four. But of course, as always, we love to include some light speculation and spoiler discussions from the books and the video games. So fair warning, there could be light spoilers and speculations from the larger Witcher canon. Additionally, we love to hear from you. Reach out to us at windshowlingpodcast at gmail.com. In fact, before we dive into today's summary and takeaways and overall impressions of the episode, we're going to be sharing some emails from listeners, which I'm super excited about. First up, we have an email from Stephen Sutherland. This is what he wrote. In your latest episode, you go on at length about how the witchers seem like jerks. I didn't feel it that way. I feel the witchers in the show are strongly modeled on a sports team. Yeah, they seem antagonistic, but what they are really doing is probing and testing each other. The vibe I got watching the training play out is that Lambert is actually looking out for Ciri by challenging her in ways that Geralt won't. In my opinion, they're doing her a favor by not coddling her. The taunting and goading may seem like bullying, but in the context of a team, it serves an important purpose. It may not be what the books were, but I absolutely felt what they were going for with the team dynamic, and they pretty much nailed the feel of how high-level athletes interact on a team. That's a great take, Stephen. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective on that. It is really refreshing to get perspectives like this from people who may have only ever watched the TV show and nothing else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because it seems to me that's a vast minority is people that have only just watched the show. It seems like most people are the games and then have come into it and the least would be the books or maybe even all three. So, yeah, no, absolutely interesting. And this is a great question. We get to talk about sports.
0: Yeah, I'm curious, Brett, you're an athlete, much more of an athlete than I have ever been in my life. What do do you think of Stephen's take, his sort of read on the Witchers being this high-stakes sports team and that explaining their actions here?
1: Uh, Yeah, I've been playing sports since I was literally three or four years old, some type of organized sports. But I do think more importantly in me answering this question is I've been a coach. My entire adult life has been a coach of a high school coach and even a collegiate coach. And for those familiar, I've coached Division I college basketball, which is the highest level of collegiate basketball in the United States. And yeah, I'm just, I got so excited when I saw this. I disagree with it mainly because Siri is not a high level athlete. She's brand new. She needs to be trained. They're not training her. When teams kind of do this, it's very antagonistic, especially in basketball. But usually that's built on at least a base level of respect. And you're pushing somebody because you want to get them better. But in a way, you're also working with them. Up until this episode, they have not really trained her like really only Geralt did until the ending of the last episode. There's been nothing that Lambert has shown up until this episode that he respects Ciri, that he cares about Ciri, that he wants her to get better. And so I get what he's saying from that. I just don't think that they have shown it to be that to correlate it at least that same way or to be able to compare it that same way. Now, after this episode, we clearly see they respect her. And now when they do it, and actually I will mention that when the whole dress thing, Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. but up
1: until now, I just, I'm not seeing that exact same thing. And like I said, if I'm a coach and I go into a practice on the first day and some players were treating another player like that, I would have to be like, Hey, what the hell's going on? Like, especially if they were better, like if they were varsity players who were talking to a, like a freshman and like just making fun of them on the first day and not helping them out, I'd be like, Hey, what the fuck are you doing? I wouldn't actually cuss, but you know what I mean?
0: I'd say like, <laughs> no, you're leaders.
1: You're supposed to be leading. You're supposed to be helping them. So again, a great email. Please email about sports and history. That I'll talk about that all day. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I hope I explained that, Stephen. Uh, if not, you know, by all means, feel free to email us again. And anybody else, especially who has an athletic or a coaching background, if you saw it the same way or different, I would love to hear that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, everything we're saying is not to discount Stephen's take on it. Like his perspective is perfectly valid and I can totally see where he's coming from. But I wanted to include his email in today's episode because, Brett, I know you have that athletic coaching background and I wanted to get your take on it. All right, let's move on to email number two. Another listener email that we wanted to talk about is actually a question about Witcher training from Tiffany Rex. So Tiffany wrote to us and said, Okay, I may have been having too much sauce in my grog, but I swear I remembered that Geralt was seriously scarred by his Witcher training and would not wish it upon anyone. If that is the case, then I'm confused about their family relationship and this father relationship they have with Vesemir. So, was it absolutely horrid or only horrid at the beginning and then it turned into a love this place and love these people thing? Also." Don't I remember something about how painful it was to turn his eyes? So is that not a whole Witcher thing that they have their glowing brown eyes and white hair? No one else has it. We keep debating this. Please feel free to tell me to lay off the wine if I am completely remembering this incorrectly. Amazing email. Thank you for writing, Tiffany. There was actually much, much more to that email. She wrote this iconic, like, four-paragraph thing. I, for one, vote that she should be drinking more wine if these are the types of questions she's going to be emailing us. More wine. Amazing stuff. (laughs) So Witcher lore question about Witcher training. Brett, do you want to take this one? What does Tiffany need to know about Witcher training, the trial of grasses, and how horrible it may or may not have been for those young candidates?
1: Okay, so I'm going to take this and then pass the ball right back to you. See, in basketball, it's called a give and go. Hey!
0: <laughs> because there's,
1: there's some stuff, and it's, this is where a lot of it starts to mix in with me when it comes to the games and comes to the show and comes to the books. Like this whole witching profession, you know, it was started because there were monsters. Oh, we need something to fight these monsters. We're going to mutate these humans to do it. And yeah, the whole thing is, it's terrible. Nightmare of the Wolf shows how horrible it is. Yeah. And yeah, I I guess the way you can say it is it goes back almost to that first email. It's just a bonding thing. They've survived it. They're part of the 30% that have made it through the trial of the grasses. And now they're all in it together because they're not humans. They're not anything. They're truly outcasts. So even if you don't really like each other, you kind of have to be together because there's nobody else you can be with. You can't be in normal society.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I think you covered it. Like, Most of these students, almost two-thirds of them, never made it through that training. So, Tiffany, you are correct that the training was horrible. It was brutal. The few witchers that still exist today are the lucky few who survived all of that. And again, to your sports analogy, Brett, to your point, like overcoming these odds, having these horrible shared experiences that they survived together is one hell of a way for this group of... Boys to bond with each other, however awful it was. So that kind of explains why they have this brotherly, camaraderie, family relationship with each other and with Vesemir as their teacher. In addition to that, I think it's the only life they've known. These kids were often orphans, war orphans, or they were sold off at a young age by their parents for one reason or another. The Witchers, Kareboran, Vesemir, each other. These are the only quote-unquote family they have ever had and have ever known. This is the life that destiny handed to them, so they don't know any other way to live. It's kind of really, really sad when you think too much about it. (laughs) To answer the last part of Tiffany's question about why Geralt has white hair and why his eyes are like that, Geralt underwent these sort of unique, even more brutal and experimental mutations that even his fellow Witcher brothers didn't undergo. And that's why Geralt is stronger and faster than the other Witchers and why he's our sort of main character and protagonist. Even within the Witchers, he is special above and beyond.
1: I don't know if I'm using this term correctly, but does that make him a super cyan?
0: Hey! A Dragon Ball Z reference from Brett! Is
1: that what it is? (laughs)
0: Yeah, you crushed it. Super super Saiyan, super but I'm not going to okay. dock you on the pronunciation. <laughs> right, that's one, I love that. That's
1: one of the things that I just randomly hear around the high school classrooms and hallway. I have no idea what it was from. I just know, hey, this is some kind of anime term, so it sounds like it's yeah. this case. I'm
0: just going to toss it. That here. warms my heart. The kids these days are still into Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, he's a super saiyan witcher okay. for sure.
1: No, anime, Dragon Ball, all of it is still massive and I
0: still don't know what the <laughs> fuck they're talking about. <laughs> well, I bring the anime energy, you bring the sports energy. It's a balance on this podcast. Perfect. Steven, Tiffany, thank you guys so much for writing to us. We love to get these emails and we will try to continue sharing your questions and your perspectives and your messages that you write us on these podcasts because- It's incredible to have these conversations with folks who are just as geeky and passionate about the Witcher as we are. With that out of the way, let's finally dive into episode four. We're going to start with our summary, as usual. Then we'll talk about some key takeaways from today's episode, and we'll wrap up with our overall impressions of the episode. So, episode four, Redanian Intelligence, opens up with Geralt and Ciri doing a training montage on the trail at Kaer Morin, when Ciri suddenly runs into Triss, who is on her way to Kermorin. Geralt walks up at this moment with a boar carcass, just looking hot as hell. I've seen so many like <laughs> thirst trap tweets about him <laughs> holding that boar carcass. <laughs> and I love all of them. And Ciri in this moment notices the undeniable sexual chemistry in the air between Geralt and Triss, as Geralt walks up and says hello to Triss. Put a pin in that thought because we will be revisiting the Triss-Geralt relationship in our takeaways later.
1: I guess I don't remember. Was there that much of it in the first season in the the Striga episode between them? I didn't think so. See, I didn't think so either. I mean, I knew there was some just because it's, hey, look, hot sorceress, hot witcher. We're just going to have it. But I don't remember specifically there being anything, at least on Geralt's part.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't think the sparks were necessarily flying on screen in season one and i think the show is implying some sort of romance happened off screen between the two
1: that that is that's a good point right there and also this scene is also framed at least from siri's point of view so maybe we're just made to see it kind of from her vantage point
0: yeah i loved it i I loved the face that freya Allen made as she's looking at gerald and tris awkwardly saying hi to each other (laughs) sparks flying In the next scene, we head to a city that we are not quite sure where, but we see these elves being rounded up, thrown in chains by human soldiers. And we actually get this really sort of awful, painful scene where we watch this human soldier abuse this old elven man who needs to go to the bathroom and uh, basically forces him to wet his pants. It's It's a painful and powerful scene to see.
1: This is the first of two or three scenes where I guess you can't say it's dehumanizing them because they're elves, but I guess I'll just say dehumanizing in the uh, sense with quotes around it is in sentient beings, and it is tough to watch. They, I mean, they are just really hitting on. Humans don't like elves. North bad. And this one just, again, might be the worst just because it's, again, it's just a dehumanizing aspect. It's not even like just beating them. Are beating this elf It's more or less just completely humiliating them.
0: Yeah, it is an effective scene and it's quite painful to watch. Either way, Kai here and Yen are walking through the busy marketplace. They're hooded, they're rushing, they're hiding and trying to figure out what their next move will be. They're at this point fugitives. Following this scene, we get an introduction to one of my favorite characters in the Witcher universe. I was very giddy. To see that this episode was called Redanian Intelligence, because I knew my boy Dijkstra was going to make an appearance. And what an appearance it is. In this spectacular scene, Dijkstra saves King Vesemir from two plotters, stabs one with a knife, forces the other one to drink the poisoned wine that Vesemir was about to.
1: Yeah, and Vesemir is just rather like, oh, this again, like, just get this over with. This is just. Yeah. <laughs> Is this this normal?
0: Yeah, his reaction was so funny.
1: I guess that's Redania for you. Redanian court life.
0: That's Redania. But in the short scene, Dijkstra and Vesemir have a bit of a conversation about the current political climate and ultimately decide to conspire to take Sintra from Nilfgaard and use all of this current political turmoil to their advantage. So again we're seeing some politics come into play here, which is always great. We then jump to Kaer Morin, and it's dinner time. Everyone's sitting down having a meal and Siri brings up a question about mushrooms and herbs and why she doesn't have any on her plate tonight. Lambert very awkwardly sort of jumps in and is like, "Oh, what are you talking about? Don't don't say that." This is actually a subtle hint to something that's explored more fully in the books, but we basically know that the Witchers have been giving Siri some natural remedies that are supposed to enhance her physical capabilities. They're not exactly giving her the full-on witcher mutations and potions. Instead, they're trying out some herbs and mushrooms that are a little more natural and less aggressive on her body.
1: Yeah, good little, like you said, is very subtle. I missed it on the first watch through. But no, yeah, it was very good. My ears perked up when I heard that.
0: Yeah, I'm gl- really glad they included that it's just another example of kind of how clueless the Witchers are when trying to take care of Ciri, which a lot of this episode and Triss's visit is about. And that's actually exactly what they talk about over dinner. We basically establish the fact that the Witchers have asked Triss to come to Kaer Morin to help them take care of Ciri because they feel out of their depth, particularly to train and work with Ciri on her magical abilities, the powers that she has no control over at the moment.
1: I do also like that Lambert kind of hints at her like, "Oh, you must have knocked your head, girl," and then she covers for him. Again, that shows us that they're getting closer, that it's not necessarily just an antagonistic relationship anymore.
0: Yeah, you could tell that they have started to bond over these last couple of days and weeks. In the next scene, we jump back to Kaihir and Yen who are escaping from these guards, they're trying to make their way out of the city and get to Sintra when they run into two fugitive elves in the sewers beneath the city. These two elves tell here and Yen about someone called the Sandpiper who helps fugitives like them get to Sintra. And so the four of them decide to work together and get to the Sandpiper. We then jump back to Triss and Geralt who are still at the dinner table. They're sort of staying up late after dinner, still chatting. And they're primarily discussing Ciri's magical abilities. He also says something really great that I want to quote to Triss here, he sort of cuts right to the heart of why the witchers think they need help from Triss. He says, quote, Mages, Nilfgaard, something dark lies ahead of her. I can feel it. That's why I'm training her. I won't be here forever to protect her. End quote. And that, again, we're seeing that relationship, that father-daughter relationship start to build up, and it's nice to see Geralt finally ask for help when he needs it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was a lion's share of what the first three chapters of Blood of Elves was. It was the witchers and Ciri at Kaer and then, oh, we need help. But a lot of it was the bonding of Triss and Ciri and how in the books they have this very sibling she calls a sister. And so it is this kind of like family. Yeah. I love that they put this in here. It's just, again, one of those, I would have liked it to have been more stretched out and more in depth. And that's honestly the biggest criticism of the second season that I have is while it was very, very good, it still just tried to cram too much into the eight episodes. The relationships are everything and they're gonna have to really get this more if they're gonna tie it to the way we know what happens in the books. To really pull this together is a culmination of all of these characters. And right now it's just... A little bit misfiring for me.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This scene between Triss and Geralt actually wraps up on another important note, where Triss asks Geralt to stay with her for the night. But Geralt politely turns her down. We then jump back to the aqueducts, where here and Yen and their two elven refugee friends continue their escape when they are suddenly attacked by a creature in the sewers. The older elf that was with them runs away like a coward, and Kaihir and Yen manage to pull away from the monster just barely and escape the aqueducts. After that scene, we finally get our big reveal of the episode. Who is the Sandpiper? It turns out it's our boy Yaskir, his first appearance in the season, episode four. He's back. And at the moment, he is currently performing his new hit single, Burn, Witcher, Burn. I don't know what you thought about this song this time around. For me, not quite as highly ranked and instantly iconic as Toss a Coin to Your Witcher, but I still liked it.
1: Yeah, it didn't, it didn't move the needle for me. And as a whole, and it was something I didn't really think about until the series was over and I was thinking back to it, the music... The score, everything from this season was just so forgettable and was such a step down that I actually looked up that the composers for the first season, Sonia Belisova and Genoa Ostinelli, actually did not come back for season two. So they got somebody new and there is not one piece of music. And this isn't to be negative about the guy. I think it was it was okay. It was just forgettable. But there wasn't anything from this season that stood out. and. The Witcher season one, I remember thinking like, oh, man, every single fantasy series that I know and love and that I've watched, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, all three of those, the music is so distinct. And as soon as I hear like two or three notes, it takes me there. And The Witcher season one has a couple of those. And the only thing about the second season that I can honestly say was a complete miss to me was the music. And man, I really hope those two, I could, I also could not find out why they didn't come back. I couldn't see that they were replaced, if they were fired, there's nothing in their filmographies that I can see that they're doing. So maybe they're working on something that's coming out, but it was such a disappointment to see that they weren't back because of just how much it just didn't, it didn't hit me this season.
0: Yeah, I agree. The music was definitely a step down. Following Yasker's performance, we then jump to a very short scene where we cut to Dijkstra alone in a room with this snowy owl that we saw earlier in the Visimir scene as well. And he is sort of having this what seems like a one way discussion with this owl, but it's clear that some sort of telepathy is perhaps happening because he's getting responses. He is figuring out how to get into Sintra. Ultimately, the Owl and Dijkstra decide that their best plan of action is to sneak an elf spy into the city. And thus, we get a quick shot of them grabbing Dara from the first season. He is presumably going to be the elf spy for Dijkstra and the Redanian plot.
1: Okay, I was kind of confused why they decided to make it look like Dijkstra was having a schizophrenic moment. Yeah. Because when it first was happening, I was like, oh God, is somebody taking over his mind? Like, why it was like that? Why wouldn't he just be having a normal conversation? Because I've had telepathy in the show before. Like I said, he's kind of skitzing out and I'm like, okay, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting decision. What do you make of it?
0: I was thrown off for a second, but then I ultimately was like, okay, I think they're just sort of playing into Dijkstra's character as sort of this uh, spy master, because that's what he is for Vesemir, basically and this is perhaps just the way he works like frantically talking to himself and to this owl as he he plots as many plots i sort of read it as just a characterization thing and nothing much more than that
1: yeah and i don't think it's it's not that big a deal and again this is one of those we're just now introduced to Dijkstra. so this is where we start to take the preconceived things of what we've thought about a character in, and we accept it into the tv version but one thing that i've always thought about dextra is that Dijkstra Is always calm. He's cool. He's collected. Basically, the way he entered the series here, as he knifes this woman and calmly, you know, has this guy take his own poison, if you will. He's in total control. And so with this, he's not. Now, here's the thing. If they're doing that to show that he's not in total control because of the owl, then bravo. Yeah. And we can talk about that later.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Don't want to say too much about the owl yet. But yeah, there, there may be more going on this in this scene that we won't learn until later, until future seasons. We then move on and return to Care Morin, where Ciri is sort of excited. She's looking forward to working with her magic with Triss, and she's dressed up. She put a flower in her hair. She's washed. And Lambert and Cohen tease her a little bit. They make fun of her. This kind of irks Triss. She turns to them and says, you should be ashamed of yourselves. And I think to your point earlier about the sports and the sort of teasing and probing, this here didn't feel like the previous episode to me. This, to me, felt like playful teasing with someone that they now care for and respect. And there's mutual respect back and forth. Obviously, it still upset Ciri's feelings, but it didn't feel malicious like the previous instances did.
1: Yeah, the previous scene there together was Geralt telling Siri hey go to bed now and cohen's like okay you know we can play slaps out there snaps i think is what it was called snaps snaps whatever and then then lambert also kind of leaves as well and it's like okay now we know by this episode and their interactions they respect each other now she's a part of the team the mutual respect is there and so this is playful teasing oh your highness oh is that a flower it's not antagonistic this is when you're needling someone And then she obviously, you know, gets her feelings hurt and they're just like, eh, whatever. And so, yeah, to me, this is where it's just ignorant. Tris actually calls them out as being willfully ignorant. But this is also a great thing that was also in the books where Tris dresses all of them down, being like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, have you never interacted with someone like this? Which that question is, no, they haven't. (laughs) Which is why they needed someone (laughs) like Tris.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They do actually apologize, which I thought was very cute because... Later, down in the lab, Geralt comes down and hands Siri her breakfast, and he's like, ah, they felt bad that you didn't finish your breakfast. Sort of an apology from them. So again, more reinforcement of this idea that they respect each other now.
1: Yeah, wouldn't they give her like two ounces of bread? Like, what kind of breakfast is that? <laughs> like, no wonder she's weak. <laughs> That's all she's eating?
0: <laughs> right. How is she supposed to finish the gauntlet with two slices of bread, What kind buddy? of
1: witcher breakfast is that?
0: <laughs> That's a great point. Here in the lab, they actually check in on the myriapod to see if it was a magical creation, and it turns out that it wasn't. But instead, they come upon another revelation. They realize that both the myriapod and the old leshy hand thing that they still have left over have the presence of stelocyte, which is the same type of substance that the monoliths are made of. So now we're starting to sort of piece together the parts of this mystery and make a connection between these monsters and the monoliths. Siri also finally opens up to Geralt in this moment and reveals to both Geralt and Triss that during her escape from Sintra, she screamed and released some uncontrolled magic and caused a monolith to topple over, which we saw happen in the first season. And thus Geralt decides, okay, I gotta go investigate. I gotta head to Sintra and figure this out. In the next scene, we then jump to Oxenfurt, where Yaskir and Yen reconnect. Yen explains her situation, how she's on the run, and Yaskir agrees to help both Kaihir and Yen get to Sintra. So
1: Yaskir mentions Bleoberis, which is this massive tree, which these druids kind of control, and it was a very open and tolerant place. And Yaskier mentions it here as if it were attacked and they came and took the elves, which does not happen in the books. And so I think it's just more or less, they're really just amping up this anti-elven or just non-human persecution. He mentions they're going to come for the dwarves and they're going to eventually come for everybody that's not them, the artists as well. And so I kind of got like that feeling from there that they're just really amping up that these northern realms, if you will, are just really bad, which again, if they're trying to get this murky gray area, it's good because Nilfgaard is the antagonist of the show for sure. But at the same time, if it's going to be two sided, the Northern realms are every bit as bad as them. They're not this invading army that's slaughtering everybody, but they're just slaughtering the non-humans. So we're kind of left to be like, everybody's bad.
0: Yeah, exactly. That gray area that the Witcher is so known for hard to pick a side because all the sides are awful in their own ways. (laughs) Back in Kaer Triss and Geralt share a little heart-to-heart and open up to each other about their feelings, and then she portals him to Sintra to investigate the toppled monolith. We almost get the line, I hate portals here, from Henry Cavill. It almost felt like he looked right at the camera and looked right at me and was about to say (laughs) it, and I got all excited and then he doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> but
1: I, I think it was a definite. There was a definite trolling of people who have played yeah. the Witcher Three. And as he says <laughs> that, yeah. she's like, oh, "Here comes up. I hate portals." And it's just portals are no fun. I think is what he said. And I was like, "Ah." Oh. It yeah. was almost a DiCaprio meme. Just oh, he's yeah. gonna say it or the say the line Bart meme.
0: Right, right. Say the, the line. Girl. I hate portals. And then Yay. he did it. And he, he didn't did it. do it. And we all boo him. <laughs> <laughs> boo. Back in Oxenfurt, Yaskir is smuggling the elves onto this boat to get them to Sintra. when he is recognized by one of the guards. And this conversation they have back and forth about one of his songs gets a bit cheeky. There's some meta season one commentary here. The guard says, quote, it's a bit complicated. Took me to the fourth verse to understand there were different timelines. That magic kiss, that was kind of cheap. And I spotted that dragon reveal a mile away. And obviously that is some of the criticism that many fans had about season one with the multiple timelines and the magic kiss thing that you and I even talked about on the podcast. And then of course, the dragon being such a big talking point from the first season. So a little fourth wall breakage happening here in this back and forth.
1: Yeah. Yaskier rants on him against probably better judgment. (laughs) Some of the stuff of what he said, I was like, oh man, that's kind of similar to what I said last episode. Where he basically says, you criticize this because you're an idiot and you can't do it yourself, you stupid dock worker. No, I did not say it (laughs) in those words. But yeah, back last episode, I said a lot of people who criticize these things, they've never created a goddamn thing in their life. So maybe try to create something on your own and then you can understand how difficult it may be. But as he was saying that, I was like, oh, man, I hope I didn't come off like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think you did. I edited the more brutal parts of your rant. Don't worry.
1: Oh, perfect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this criticism of his ballad gets to Yaskier. He can't help himself. And like you said, he goes off on the guard, which ruins the plan. Now the elves can't get onto this boat until the cowardly elf from earlier walks out and redeems himself by taunting the guards, pulling them away from the boat, and ultimately, uh, I think getting killed or at least really, really wounded in this scene and most definitely captured.
1: Yeah, it's a, you know, very common trope. The guy redeems him in the end. I, I guess it was good. But like you said, it was, you know, c- can we see him at the end give like a thumbs up like he's leaving the field of injury? Like, is is he OK or they right, just kill right. him? They probably just <laughs> killed him. But yeah, uh, sadly, go out a hero.
0: Yay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good for him. In the next scene we jump back to Kermorin, where Vesemir discovers fainwood which is a flower that only grows where elder blood has been spilled and of course he discovers it on the gauntlet on the trail everywhere Ciri has been and this is the reveal that she has elder blood we also learn and this I believe is a show creation Vesemir says that the elder blood is rumored to be a key ingredient in witcher mutations and he is suddenly starting to see a possibility where witchers might be able to come back and they won't be a dying breed.
1: Yeah, I don't think Sapkowski ever really delved that much into it. I think it was just understood at that point in the books, like, we're never going to have witchers again. Like, we're the last of it. We can't do it. Yeah. But I think this is definitely tying into Blood Origin, the prequel series coming up, and same with Nightmare of the Wolf. I think all of this is going to play into it to where keen-eyed or keen-eared watchers will remember it, and they'll be like, oh, this ties together. And so this again goes back to the Witcher cinematic universe of them tying it all together.
0: Yep, the WCU. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought of the connection to Blood Origin. But now that you say it, it seems so obvious. In the final scene of this episode, Yaskier and Yen say their heartfelt goodbyes to each other. is a bit cheeky, which is very on-brand for him, but they do seem to genuinely have made a connection here. Unfortunately, as soon as Yaskir walks off the boat, we hear him scream, he's been captured, and in that moment, Yen has a split-second decision to make. Does she stay on the boat and do what Kai here says? Yennefer, we have to save ourselves. Or, does she jump off the boat and try to save Yaskir? But before We see her make a decision. Boom. Roll credits, baby. End of the episode.
1: With the summary out of the way, let's take a short break.
0: Welcome back. Let's jump into our two key takeaways from this episode. So first up, I wanted to take a couple of minutes here, Brett, to talk about Siri as a young woman. This is clearly something that the Witchers are struggling with and why they have brought Triss to Care Morin. The show, of course, as we discussed earlier, doesn't go quite as deep and doesn't spend quite as much time on this Triss-Kaer visit as the book does. But we still hit on many of the sort of big themes that the book explores. The Witchers are, of course, out of their depth with Ciri. She's got this unknown magical ability. But almost even more than that, they're kind of struggling with the fact that she's a girl. <laughs> that she's a young girl here in Kaer Morin, And they don't quite know what to do about that. You have to remember that there are no girl Witchers. The mutations do not work. On young girls. So there are no female, no women witchers out there. It's always been this boys' club.
1: There's also no manual or Google they can go do to search of what to do. And <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of reminded of a, yeah. a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode in which a girl is basically having her first period at Larry David's house. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And he has to walk through the instructions of how to put a tampon in with this girl. <laughs> And now I'm thinking like, is that, is that Geralt right there? (laughs) Is that, is that Lambert right there going, oh, how do we do it? But this is unfortunately, (laughs) this is a great thing to discuss because Ciri's eyes here, they light up when Triss is like, yeah, I'm going to care more and I'll be there. She's like, oh my God, it's a woman. And that's the biggest thing that Triss, you can say taught her here and in the books as well was, hey, it's okay to be a woman. You're going to need to do these things. And yeah, it's something that Geralt, as much as he can provide for her, he definitely cannot provide provide for her in that manner.
0: Absolutely. It's a wake-up call. Like you said, Ciri's eyes sort of light up when there's another woman in the keep. She's surrounded by all these, like, gruff and rowdy boys all the time. And it is refreshing to have Triss there to talk to. And in the show, Ciri's like, Triss, I love your dress. Later, she puts that flower in her hair. And wears the nice clothes that the boys tease her about. In the book, it goes even further than that. Triss helps Siri with things like learning how to put makeup on, because of course Geralt is not going to walk her through like a makeup tutorial. Triss also makes clothes for her that are not just these like witcher rags that she has been wearing ever since arriving at Caramorin. I do want to acknowledge, though, that in the books there are some sort of older fashioned ideas about gender, like this equating dresses and makeup to Siri being more of a girl. Obviously, like modern sensibilities, modern like 2022 levels of wokeness would have issues with that. So I did want to acknowledge that the book sort of leans a little heavier into this idea that Triss comes in and teaches Siri how to be a quote unquote girl again. I will say the show, I think, dodges these issues pretty well, while still including some of them.
1: One thing I think you could look at is maybe not necessarily being more of a woman per se, but just more feminine. Is that something more fair or a better way to put it, I guess?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. She is living with a bunch of testosterone filled dudes and is never acknowledging that feminine side of her. And it takes Tris to sort of help her and walk her through that. And I think the biggest, actually to your Larry David point from earlier, I think one of the biggest moments for Siri is when she has to talk to Triss about having her periods. In the books, she's a little younger. She's a young woman who's on the verge of puberty and starts having her periods around the time she's at Care Morin. And what's so heartbreaking and horrifying is she's basically just like hiding it or not acknowledging this thing. She never mentions it to the boys and the boys, even if she did mention it, would have no idea how to talk to her about it. And it isn't until Triss shows up that Siri learns what the heck is going on with her body. It's a really sort of heartbreaking moment and shows us the ignorance of these witchers, how they're incapable of fully supporting Siri like she needs.
1: And I could be remembering this wrong, but does she not actually want to be like a boy in the books?
0: Yeah, in the books. Yeah.
1: Yeah, she wants almost in a way for her to be changed because she wants to be a witcher. She wants to be one of them. You know, And they tell her, no, you can't. It's just stuff like that that I just feel they could have gotten in the show to really hit on it because it's such a big part of her character development is how she learns to accept herself. But it's neither here nor there, I guess.
0: Yeah. I will say it is hinted at. The scene where Tris yells at Lambert and Cohen for being ignorant assholes, the full quote she says does hint at some of these things. You dress her in rags. Keep her bruised as an apple? Does she even have a chemise? Or soap? Or cloth for when she gets her blood? Though, with those mushrooms you're feeding her, you'll ruthlessly deprive her of that before too long. You say you're mutants. That's why you don't understand what people feel. But the truth is, you're choosing to be ignorant assholes, aren't you? End quote. I loved that. That hints at the whole period plot line from the books, and it Hints once more at the mushrooms that they're feeding her that are potentially changing her biologically and potentially doing long term damage to her body. Because again, the mutations, all the training, everything at Kaer Morin has been designed for boys and for male physiology. They can't just give Siri the same stuff. They don't know what's going to go wrong there. And Triss is kind of here to crack the whip about that. Like, stop being idiots, you guys. You can't treat Siri like you would treat any other young boy going through training at Karamorin.
1: Tris Triss dressing down the witchers, I just put my hands in the air and was like, yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, so good. It's so good. And I'm like, okay, that's such a big thing of her coming in and just like, just breaking these dudes. I was like, okay, that was good. It was great, actually.
0: Yeah, I loved it. In summary, this first takeaway about Siri and Triss, I loved Triss's visit to Kaer Morin in the books and I equally loved it in the show as well. So happy to get it in the show. It was spectacular. Let's talk about another Triss relationship, though. Our second takeaway, I've sort of been teasing it all throughout this episode. Let's talk about Triss and Geralt and their relationship history, because it's a bit different in the show, it's a bit different in the books, and it's, it's dramatically different in the games, but we'll get to that. A reminder that back in season one, we learned that Triss is an advisor to King Foltest. She sits on his council in Temeria, and... Triss and Geralt first met when Geralt dealt with that whole Striga affair. The show then here is seemingly implying that perhaps Geralt and Triss had some sort of fling or romantic entanglement for a little bit around that time, and Triss has clearly caught feelings. Geralt, as we know, is deeply in love with Yennefer and doesn't necessarily feel the same way back about Triss, hence the whole Triss asking him to stay with her for the night and him turning her down. Geralt turning Triss down, though, doesn't necessarily mean that there still isn't mutual love and respect between them. Because later in the episode, when they have that bit of a heart-to-heart, Geralt is honest with her. He says, quote, I can't be what you want, Triss, what you deserve. Triss accepts the situation and actually opens up to Geralt, revealing that their shared heartbreak and trauma about Sodden is actually part of why she wanted companionship the other night. And I think it's a powerful moment. It shows us the scars that Triss carries both physically and emotionally and mentally from Sodden.
1: Yeah, Triss is very vulnerable in this moment. and I think I mentioned it previously that it's one of my favorite scenes in the books. It's one of my favorite in all of the books is when Triss is at Kaer Morin and she starts to recant Sodden. And naming the mages and they tell her out. I want to hear this shit. She's like, no, like, I'm going to say this. You're going to hear it. Yeah. And it's primarily because she needs to talk about it. And she knows, especially talking about it with these witchers, they'll never come into contact with anybody. She will. And so it's like this perfect form of therapy that she gets off her chest. And she does it in this episode. And it might be why I enjoyed the episode so much was so much of Triss was actually an adaptation and it was good. And it worked because it was like the best moments from the books that I liked about Triss. And again, I don't know. There's definitely a history there for sure. The way they leave it on Geralt's face when Siri asks, Hey, how do you know Triss? And then when Triss asks, Hey, do you know Siri? It just goes on his face and he just sighs and just like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, how do I do this? <laughs> but no, this, I mean, we'll get it when we recap the episode. But stuff like this was great. They're incredibly slow moments where it's two people talking in a room. And it's the best the show gets. Netflix, please. Yes. Please, we'll God damn it. it. One of you producers understand that this is when the show is great.
0: Yep. This is when it's at its best, for sure. So, this wouldn't be wind's howling if we just stopped with the show. We got to talk about the books and the games. The relationship between Triss and Geralt is similar in the books. But there are some tweaks, and there are things that are definitely, at least for me, a little more problematic. For one thing, in the books, Triss actually seduces Geralt with magic, so there's kind of some questionable consent issues there, but she seduces him using magic after learning that Yen has been in a relationship with this really interesting witcher, and she's just like curious about it, so she goes and like sleeps with her friends boyfriend. It, it feels kind of weird and scummy in the fact that she uses magic. I don't know. It, it kind of is played off as like a, oh, it's like an innocent thing. They had a fling, but it always felt very weird to me. She's also in the books and specifically in Blood of Elves during the Kaer Morin chapters. She is <laughs> like way hornier for Geralt in the books than is portrayed in the show. And I'm very glad that they toned that down because that also felt just incredibly weird in the books for her to be just like pining over Geralt and desperate for him to join her in bed. It, it just it didn't feel great. So I'm glad they toned that down.
1: You see, I, it didn't feel weird to me because Triss is younger and she's at Kaer Morhen up here during the winter time. It's just them. There's no chance of really getting with anybody else. So I can understand
0: that's being in a secluded yeah.
1: place like this with someone you like of just being that horny. Because what what else are you going to do? But I do think a big thing on that is the fact that she is
0: so young. Yeah. She's definitely portrayed a bit younger in the books.
1: True, true.
0: Than, than she is in the show. Everyone is a bit aged up in the show. So that's the relationship between Triss and Geralt in the books. The games take Triss in a, (laughs) we've talked about this a bit before, in a wildly different direction. They change up her character so much. The romance with Geralt still remains. And actually, in the video games, you can pursue Triss as a romantic partner rather than Yennefer, which obviously has led to the iconic Team Yen or Team Triss debates that are so rampant in the Witcher community. None of the game stuff is canon, though, so... There's no reason to believe any of that is ever going to make its way into the show. And to me, at least, this episode seems to have buttoned up the trish Garrett relationship nicely. And this conversation in that scene where they have that heart to heart, to me, reads as both of them acknowledging and agreeing that they are close friends, but they will never be anything more than that romantically. All right, Brett, let's wrap up today's episode. I think it's clear that both of us feel much more positively about this than the last couple. But what are your thoughts about episode four?
1: I mean, I really enjoyed it. And because this wasn't an insular episode, it actually has to do with what's gone on before and what is happening in the future. I might say I think it I like it more than episode one, simply because it matters for the rest of the season. Like, it's very easy just to do one episode that you can just wrap up in a nice little bow like kind of they did with the Novellin story, but this to actually tie it to what it's been, it was paced very well. Again, you can tell by the previous two episodes we've done, we were not the biggest fans of them. This was just, it was very enjoyable. It was smooth. It kept going. There wasn't a monster fight, was there?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I guess you can kind of say there was a little bit of one with Yen in the sewers, but not really. There wasn't with Geralt. They didn't stop down everything to have a five to 10 minute CGI fest. There was a lot of talking, and it was the best episode. Vizimir, oh my god, King Vizimir is just so good. Is this just dainty, dumb, easily misled king that we just know <laughs> that we just know that Dijkstra is just going to control them and, and that owl? So I, I love, I love Vizimir <laughs> so much. It's just that yeah, guy's so great. He was
0: great, good casting choice. So
1: great. Oh yeah, great. And a lot of care more and bonding, greatly needed. But again, I am going to criticize it. There's just not enough time to fully flesh out how close these characters should feel. They should be so tightly bonded, and a lot of it just has to be told to us, and it has to be a five to six minute scene, or maybe seven, eight minutes, but they have decided to add certain things, like the monolith, and these monsters, and that's just going to take the place of it. Yeah. That's their decision. This is their choice of what to do, so... Long story short, it was a great episode, and it's just, again, it's, it's setting us on track for the rest of the season, and just, it was great.
0: I felt exactly the same way. I think you basically hit on a lot of the points I wanted to mention as well. I loved this episode. There was a lot of politics. We got fan-favorite characters like Dijkstra and Yaskier. And like you said, we got those incredibly powerful and slow, intimate character moments between Triss and Geralt and Ciri. Did I want more of that? Absolutely. Did we still manage to cover a lot of the themes and major points that were covered in Blood of Elves and adapted from the novels? Absolutely. And I think they did another great job adapting that source material in this episode. It's another example of showing us that this team can do it well. And once again, just to reiterate, like you said, I could not agree more. There was no monster fight in this episode, and I loved it for that. There was no generic third act, big CGI fest monster fight. And honestly, the episode did not suffer for it. And I hope that's something that the creative team can lean more heavily into. These intimate moments were so powerful, and we didn't need any action in this episode for this to be a good episode, for this to be a great episode, frankly. Well, Brett, podcasts are podcasts. Lesser, greater, middling, they're all the same. But we've completed our contract, and it's time to collect our reward. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on LordParty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the path.